0: There's something that you can do to radically improve your knowledge of music theory, of orchestration, and just understanding how music works. And you can do it even if you don't have a teacher at the moment. And we're going to talk about that next. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 16 of the Musician Toolkit. I am your host, David Lane, and it is great to be with you once again. I'm personally very excited about today's episode, and, and I feel like some of you are also going to be as excited as I am. But some of you may be coming in, maybe maybe you've heard other episodes, or maybe this is your first episode. And I might have to persuade you of why to stick around, because I could perceive how it might come across as um, overtly for lack of a better word, overtly nerdy. And that might be saying something for a podcast that really gets into the nuts and bolts of all kinds of aspects of musicianship. As I said at the very beginning of this episode, there is something that you can do. I mean, there's a lot of things that you can do, but there's one thing specifically that even if you don't have a teacher right now, or you're not sure when you will have a teacher to guide you, that can teach you so much about how music is put together, and that is the art of score study. You may have seen some of the video excerpts from previous episodes, or maybe you watch these on YouTube. Maybe you're watching right now. If so, you've noticed that in my background, I have a couple of bookshelves. And right on the one that's closest to the door, top shelf, those are all orchestral scores. And, uh, you know, some of them, and actually there's about four shelves from the top. There's a bunch of smaller ones. These are all study scores, uh, probably about a third to half the height of the bigger scores that I have. And that is what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be talking about score study. Now, score study falls under a bigger umbrella of something that you can do in musicianship that we would just call analysis and there's specific things you can do you can take a solo violin piece one staff you can take um you can take jazz lead sheets you can take you know any kind of music from any genre and you can choose something to analyze about it and a lot of times when we say analysis in music we're talking specifically about functional harmony um you know well maybe if it's not a traditional classical style piece we might say not f- functional harmony, but just identifying what are the chords, we might also get into certain types of pieces and talk about the, the melodic material and how it's been uh, used and how it's been manipulated, How it's, what kind of variations there are with it. And so when you consider all the things that you can do and all the things that you can learn by looking at a score and all the types of genres there are, this is probably the first of many episodes that we'll have on this subject on the life of the podcast but today i wanted to talk about specifically orchestral scores obviously if you are a conductor there's a huge benefit to getting as many scores as you can and looking at them and seeing what the orchestra's doing and and so forth and we're going to talk a little bit about that but i specifically want to reach out to those who of course one of the tools is the ability to compose and again, you might not consider yourself a composer with a capital C or an arranger with a, cap, with a capital A. But I promise you, if you excel in musicianship, there's going to be times where you're you're going to wish, if you don't already, that you you had the ability to take a piece of music and arrange it for an ensemble. And someone might say, hey, could you add some woodwinds to that or some brass or some strings or percussion or maybe... Maybe someone says, hey, I, my orchestra will play something you'll write. Uh, I like this this thing that you've done for your instrument. There's a lot of possibilities out there. So one of the things that is often taught in school is the art of orchestration. And there are two great ways to learn orchestration by yourself. Both of them involve listening to pieces from orchestra. But the first one is listening to pieces from orchestra in addition to reading textbooks on orchestration. The second common way though, and the way that has that most composers probably in the history of the world have ever done, <laughs> is listening to music in addition to looking at the written scores and making observations about what's there and how it works and why it works. So for the purposes of, to, of this conversation, we're going to primarily be talking about orchestral scores, primarily from the perspective of someone who would like to learn it to be able to duplicate the results themselves. And I couldn't think of anybody better to talk to about this than my friend of over 25 years, Andrew Callow. Andrew was a classmate and a very good friend uh, from my final two years of university education at university of north carolina school of the arts we were both in the same class studying film scoring together and he is an accomplished composer in his own right we'll talk about some of the things that that he has written some of the things that he's arranged and you know and and some of the things that he still does musically but i brought him on because of all the things that we talked about that have stuck with me through multiple decades, what has stuck with me probably the most is a lot of great conversations that we had about studying scores, what kind of scores, uh, some of the things that we learned from it. And so I thought it'd be great to have him on. And we're going to reminisce about some of the things that we talked about before. And then we're going to go forward from there. And what I hope that you'll learn from this uh, whether you're a beginner at composing an orchestration or whether you know you've you've done quite a bit yourself. We're going to talk about how you can obtain some scores. What are some of the things that you can do? What what strategies can you take in learning things from the score? And I'll give you a hints, some of them not only include your knowledge of theory, but also improving your ear training. We're and we're going to talk about some recommended scores that you check out. Uh, especially if you're a beginner, some ones that you can get started with that are maybe not as intimidating as others. All right, it's a bit of a long conversation. And again, I hope I can persuade you to stay the whole time because I enjoyed every bit of it. And I think every bit of it is valuable if you really want to take your musicianship to the next level, regardless of whether or not you consider composing and arranging the primary thing that you do. Here is my conversation with my friend, Andrew Callow. It's my pleasure today to be talking to my friend from way back, who we've really only recently connected in person earlier this year. Uh, I guess it was earlier this month. This is or last month, right? <laughs> yeah, it was last month. Uh, right, but uh, Andrew, welcome to the podcast. It's great to talk to you today.
1: Well, thank you for having me, and it's good to to talk to you and uh, to see you again.
0: It's like old times. Andrew and I are two thirds of the class of 1999 film scoring class at uh north carolina school of the arts it was we entered when it was only two years old so I, i'm not sure how many more students that they take but uh, but yeah we went through the two-year program and uh, and i'm sure in a different episode we could have all kinds of stories about um not only what we learned from that but the roller coaster of trying to make that work as a career <laughs>
1: yeah Yep, it's it's uh, quite a roller coaster.
0: <laughs> so besides, you know, sharing two years of classes together, and and I feel like we had basically every class together, which was like completely different <laughs> than any. <laughs> you, you know that was that was the fun thing about graduate school. Um, there there might have been one class, or you know, we didn't have the same thing. But besides that, we hung out quite a bit, and we had a lot of conversations uh, about all kinds of things, but especially related to music and film music and uh, composing and so forth. And one of the topics that, uh, that we shared quite a bit of conversation about that I don't think I've really had on an equal measure with anybody else is score study. And this is something that I think so many musicians are missing out on by not taking time you know either a few times a month or once a week or however much uh, they can devote to it to do that I think I think conductors most professional conductors of course do it for what they're about to conduct they have to they have to go through it and and how much may depend on the conductor it may be just preparing cues and what they're going to be listening for and so forth but Um, we'll, we'll get into that for some conductors, but before we, before we dive into that subject though, uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself and just maybe, you know, last few years, especially as a composer and what you've been doing musically.
1: Well, after I got my bachelor's degree over JMU, I auditioned for the air force band as a clarinetist and I got in and was stationed over in Ohio and Germany And I did eight years as a performer on clarinet and occasionally doing a solo. Um, And I also started doing a lot of arranging. Uh, They had a staff arranger at the time there, but he was primarily occupied with the jazz band and the rock band. They had so much demand for him. So when the concert band, more symphonic stuff did not, didn't have much time for that so they employed some of my abilities to to get in there and and get some of the work done and that's where i learned to do transcriptions taking orchestra pieces and and writing them for band and learning uh from the mistakes there uh doing medleys uh, taking commercial uh sounding works and creating band arrangements for them vocal medleys uh, patriotic songs and i want to just, enter I mean, Eric,
0: uh, there's a piece you did that i i still remembered i re- i was really impressed at your work and you did almost i believe it was the incomplete how the grinch stole christmas yes
1: yes we did there was no um printed arrangement of it at the time and all i had was a cassette tape with a player that could slow, uh, fast passages down. And I had my keyboard and I had a, sketch, sketch pad, sketch pad. Mm. and I would listen and listen and listen and write that all down, put all the vocal parts in. And then the laborious part of loading it all into finale, which was working 12 hours a day, uh, to, to get that put in mm. and get it arranged, uh, clearing up some some issues with the percussion section with the percussionists uh, having them come in and listen to the recording and giving me advice on on how to notate certain things and it was that was quite a task but when it came out it was beautiful yes it was absolutely beautiful and they're still playing it, mm-hmm. even now and that was 1996 they're still playing it now so yeah, that was the big one. And then I did an original piece for the 50th anniversary of the Air Force called um, Warbirds and Warriors, which I believe the Air Force you can find on Spotify. Mm-hmm. And there's another work that's not yet recorded officially, but I have a, a performance of it, a man of the century, where we uh, took the, there was a some notes from Colin Powell regarding the GI, the American GI, an essay he kind of wrote. We took excerpts of that, and I scored original music to it. And one thing that that got me with it it was that originally there was another band that took those excerpts and used uh, selections, an arrangement of Saving Private Ryan, Mm -hmm. and it worked. But Private Ryan, it was not written for that particular text, Parts of it worked really well, and parts of it didn't. So I took it and I rewrote my own version specifically around the text, and that went very well. It's very different. Um, you know, I'm not comparing myself with John Williams or anything like that, but uh, I'm. It worked well with the text because it was specifically designed for that. That that work.
0: Right. So let's go ahead and just get into the, the main topic today. We're going to be talking about score study. Again, this was something that we chatted a lot about, and, I, and there's some things that you kind of shared with me and I'll, I'll mention as, as they come up. But okay. I thought about, you know, the we're talking about score studying in general. Let's maybe just kind of talk about some of the ways you might use score study. So um, some of the ways that I came up with is obviously if you're a conductor, it helps you see what everybody's playing. And also, you know, where are the challenges gonna be in rehearsal? What what are the lines that are gonna need, you're going to need to coach, you're going to need to bring out. Um, also, you know, in a larger scope, what are you going to do with the tempos and so forth? So that's one thing. The other thing is if you are gonna be a composer or an arranger of any kind, There's no better way to learn orchestration. You can, uh, obviously there are plenty of great orchestration textbooks, but actually seeing what great orchestra pieces do, you know, with the written score is, is definitely something. You can also use it for learning harmonies and other compositional devices. Could argue that might be better to do that in piano music, but sometimes composers think differently for orchestral pieces than they do for small scale. And let's start with those. there was a there was a fourth one I came up with. but uh, you know what how have you used score study in general, just kind of broad terms over the years? What are some of the things that you've used to in score study to 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 learn about music?
1: with score study, I usually have a specific purpose for what I'm looking for when i when i when I do score study. It's either a piece that I really like. Mm-hmm. And I hear sounds in it, or I hear harmonies that don't that I can't decipher in my head. And this is something that I do with Stravinsky scores, right? Uh, things like the Rite of Spring and and Petrushka and the Firebird and just about basically anything that I like that he wrote, mm-hmm. because he broke with tradition and created his own harmonic language and uh, an orchestration. to to fit that. So he pretty much created something brand new. And it's not, to me, his writing is not instinctive. And so I delve in to try to take apart the things I like that are not instinctive. Yeah. But that's on a more advanced level of writing. Right. But in terms, when I got started, um, I was trying to learn just basically how to take something that I wrote on piano Mm -hmm. and flesh it out for orchestra. Right. And I came across what got me started with it. And this is how I get into, we were talking about Beethoven in the past. And uh, Beethoven just happens to be my go-to for any, any beginning uh, orchestrator, composer. And what I did was one time I was in the music store in Harrisonburg And I came across two volumes of Beethoven symphonies for piano um, in two volumes here by Otto Singer. And what he did was he took all the symphonies and condensed them into two line piano music. Now I've read through them and tried to play them and they're not really playable. So I don't think he really wrote them for performance if you're going to perform out of this book you're going to need to do some some editing because you have cross voicings and you have chords that you just you don't have six fingers you right. just can't do
2: it right
1: um and leaps that that just don't work yeah so i decided to start with the easiest easiest work and i went to the first symphony mm-hmm. and the very first symphony is it's fantastic because it opens up the first 8 bars open up with a big wind choir playing these playing these chords and i found it on piano and i was listening to it and then i went to the i, I went to a music another music store and found dover uh, the dover books that had all the symphonies and i had those books side by side right right <laughs> and uh, i had the the 6th and 7th symphony right here cool. but yes so i opened that and i saw how the idea from the piano was expanded onto the score So I uh, copied that. Mm -hmm. And what I did was I created a condensed score and took that down and and wrote that out. Just basically copied what he did onto a three line score. Right. And compared it. And then I went to the next movement, I listened to it, I looked at the piano score and then I tried to do the reverse and try to flesh it out to Mm. see how close I would get to what he wrote yes. and there were some areas that shocked me. I was like, wow, I actually got good at this. And then there were others I was like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> I didn't do that right, right at all. And and that's kind of my self-taught version of orchestration. So when I finally, when I was in, in uh, my junior year and we took the orchestration class, I already had a lot of this stuff down that the other students were struggling with.
0: Right, yeah. And, you know, I think orchestration classes, it can be valuable, you know, if you have an opportunity, you know, anybody listening, definitely, especially if you have a good teacher on that, because they can help guide your ear to certain things. Like, you know, when we start talking about, uh, I I think when we talk about strings, I think we're mostly talking about what's good for each instrument, you know? So I, I think those, as a family, that's pretty simple. But when we start talking about, woodwinds we're talking about a bunch uh, a, a large family of instruments with all with different timbres and right and things you know problematic things like you know your your flute in the lowest end of its register is very soft but on the high end of the register it's very loud but the opposite is true of the oboe <laughs> right the oboe is just very honky pier- you know just piercing at the bottom you know so it's like if you if you have a unison line low you're only going to hear the oboe and if you hear have it high you're only going to hear the flute so kind of there's a lot of things like that also some it's interesting to like some techniques so how do you combine these different sounds and um i'm I'm a big fan of the i don't have the book handy it's probably on the shelf behind me but it's uh by kent keenan keenan orchestration technique of orchestration but i have that book yeah, it uses some terms like, uh, like sandwiching, I think is what it is, mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, where you could, like, if you have two clarinets, two oboes, you could put like the clarinets between the oboes or the oboes between the clarinets. And then you could also, I don't know what you call it, like clarinet, oboe, clarinet, oboe, if you're going from bottom mm-hmm. to top, you know, but, the, you know, there's a bunch of things in there that are like that where it's very handy. But if you kind of know that those exist you can find them by looking at examples like if you hear a great wind sound like you mentioned at the beginning of the first symphony you can see what beethoven chooses to do to combine those winds together mm-hmm. so yes it, it, using it for orchestration um we talked about for conductors and and, and again you can use it for learning car- harmonies and comp other compositional mm-hmm. devices one of the things uh, i didn't pull it out on my stack here but maybe something like uh, The Passacaglia by Anton Webern, Weber, Weber, which, uh, you know, if you're listening and Webern scares you off, the, that's the the one work he did before he really got into <laughs> dissonance. And uh, it's actually very, it, it's cutting edge late romantic work. But, you know, what he does with the melody, you know, he doesn't mm-hmm. just write a melody, but he passes it around. <laughs> yeah. It's just kind of a fourth level thing you can do It's with... Score study is if you want to level up on your sight reading game, <laughs> you know, you oh, got yeah, piano stuff. Um, you know, I and we're, to, I, I feel like we're talking about orchestral scores, but maybe find some chamber music or like some string quartet scores that might be interesting because you know, for the most part, it's four part texture, you know, maybe occasionally an eight part mm-hmm. texture, and you can do that. With, with your hands you might have to arpeggiate some things but just reading between the staffs and then of course also and we'll talk about like what are some of the challenges of it but you might if you're a pianist for example or just about any other player <laughs> in the orchestra or vocalist you're probably used to treble and or bass clef. Mm-hmm. And so once all you have to do is go to a string quartet and you'll see something different <laughs> in the violas. You'll see the alto clef. And if the if the cellos are not staying down low, then you're probably going to see something that almost looks like alto clef, but it's tenor clef. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, one of the things, talking about Beethoven, have fun when you look at the Ninth Symphony and the vocals. <laughs> because they've got, you know, the treble and bass clef are... You know, I think at some point we said enough's enough, put it in one spot, but they used to move around, you know, and you you have, and, and the sea clefts especially would just move all over the place. So mm-hmm. so there's a lot of transposition involved. So I guess let's just go ahead and get into the, the challenges. So, so one of the challenges is even if you're just going slow, if you're looking at orchestral pieces, there's a lot of staves to read. And by the mm-hmm. way, I just throw as an aside, some people say staves not a w- real word it's staffs <laughs> but i i don't know i'm not gonna fight that battle i'll call it stave. no not worth it <laughs> <laughs> but you have a you have a lot of staves to read um i've just opened up since we're talking about the first symphony of beethoven now this is actually this is probably not so intimidating there are 11 staves on that first page you know so you got mm-hmm. but that's helped by the fact that up to a point, maybe maybe you've noticed at what point it changes. But most of Beethoven's symphonies will put the cello and the bass on the same staff. You know, I don't know uh, at what point it became standard to separate those parts.
1: Well, it was, it, I think it was generally later in the nineteenth century when the cellos were really doing a lot of different music, different parts from the bass, right? Instead of constantly doubling, and that that throws back to eighteenth century music where the cello was nearly always doing right. doubling of a standard and even the viola which I couldn't stand doubling an octave higher right I, you know in the, the, Beethoven he he created a separate viola part right pretty much and that's what I love about his
0: his string writing for the symphonies right these functional viola and by the way what we just said that's actually what it's called the double bass it doubles <laughs> the cello. right. But right. typically, if they if if a cello and a bassist, cellist and a bassist, play the same part, it's going to sound in octaves because the bass is going to sound an octave lower than what's written. Right. But yeah, just looking, the flutes are on one line, the oboes are on one line, clarinets are on one line, bassoons are one 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 line. Um, and you know, one of the other challenges, you know, uh, I mean, this is just a seven note score but maybe if i was to pull out something like the planets by gustav holst (laughs) that's another one yes well let's see what do we got here we've got one two three four five six seven eight nine stat staves for the woodwinds one two three four five six seven eight staves for the brass one two three four five six for the percussion two groups of two staves for the harp, a group of two staves for the organ and five staves for the strings, you know? So, and and of course, if you pull out some Debussy and sometimes you'll see like the first violin splits off into all of these separate mm-hmm. groups of divisi. So, you know, this is, this is a huge score. I'm going to talk more about, uh, I've got a few examples in the planets that I'll, I'll bring back up. Um, but Back to the Beethoven, you know, one of the other challenges that we have is, uh, you know, if, you, if all you ever play is your instrument, you don't really think about this, but I'm looking at this and I, I see clarinetti. I figured that out. O, O-B-O-I, I can figure that out. Uh, mm-hmm. But then like corny in C, and sometimes oboe, it's like, I'm not even going to try to pronounce it, but H-A-U-T-B-O-O-B-O-I.
2: Au Bois. Au Bois.
0: Yes. So, you know, you you have to figure out what these instruments are. One of the things that helps is if you understand a little bit about a score, traditional score order. So let, let me let you talk for a bit. What is the traditional score order if you don't, like, mess around with things for an orchestra?
1: Well, for an orchestra, you have you have the high-end woodwind instruments down to the low-end woodwind instruments on the top. So B, piccolo, flute, oboe, English horn, if you have one, clarinets, um, bass clarinet, uh, bassoon. Well, you would have bass clarinet and bassoon down at the same same level there. And then from there, you would move into brass instruments. And because the horn is so integral, and used in both woodwind and, and, and brass music. It's at the top Mm -hmm. of the brass staves and they have them. I don't know how you call this dovetail duck tailed, where you have one in the first part and the third part and the second and the fourth part are, are black bracketed together, but they're still labeled one through four. So horn two is playing below horn three. And I know that has to do with the fact that when they used four horns in 18th century music, because they didn't have valves and they were usually mostly overtone series, that's how they would get complete four-note chords by having one in one key, like, for example, in F, and the other one would be in B-flat. Yeah. And, of course, that's not necessary today. But I actually like studying those. Mm -hmm. Um, Because when I'm doing an arrangement or or orchestration, let's say of a piece from like a Mozart piece or a string piece from, from that period, and I'm arranging it for a wind octet or 13 winds, and I have two to four horns, to try to make it sound like it was from the time period, I will go through the effort to try to voice the horns the way they would have been voiced then. Yeah. And the reason I like that is because I like the way they worked around it and how they fit into each chord and in the progression of, of the music. Right. Now, to, and now obviously today we don't need to do that. And if I'm doing more modern works or I'm writing my own music, I don't do that at all. You know, those it plays a chromatic scale. I give it whatever it wants. Right. Um, so it's not necessary, but it's just an extra step that I take. And it's, it's, it's a personal choice. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And then uh, let's continue from, from the horn right. down to the... Going down to the trumpets. You'll have two to three trumpets
1: on average, depending on the size of the orchestra. Then you have trombones. You'll have usually two trombones or a ba- and a bass trombone or three trombones. Um, when I write, I like to have three trombones and a bass trombone. I like to have the bass trombone down with the tuba Mm
2: -hmm.
1: um, from time to time. I I just like that sound in octaves and occasionally in unison to give that blatty, low sound in loud passages. Right. And then we have the percussion, whatever percussion you have. You have timpani. Mm -hmm. And then below that, you'll have the the uh,
0: non-note
1: percussion, the rhythmic percussion. And then you have the strings, four to five
0: staves right and i mean if we really wanted to take a long time per- percussionists will actually argue <laughs> about what they preferred they want like all of the parts on a page you know mm-hmm. that they can figure out or do they want a separate part for each instrument so they can kind of you know designate it out to the right section and all that but uh so we, we won't <laughs> we well actually the... i can offer some advice on that okay because most of my
1: writing is with band. Right. And bands have huge percussion sections. Mm-hmm. And what I do is I'll get with the percussion section leader and I'll I'll put the I'll give a score with just a percussion section. Mm-hmm. And I'll give it to them and say, okay, this is where I think they should fall on the lines. What do you think? And they'll go through and they'll say, Well, I know this member's here and we have it set up here. And they'll go through and they'll make the little changes and they'll say, this works better. They'll give it back to me and I'll rearrange it to the way they want it Mm -hmm. and then hand it back to them. And it works beautifully. Right. Nice. You let the experts tell you how to do it.
0: Yes. Mostly if you're writing music of any kind and it involves drums or percussion, make friends.
1: (laughs) Yes. Very important to make friends. They will love to talk about their instruments to you all day long
0: and uh you know i mean i learned from from a drummer first time i ever had to write for a drum set said stems down for the feet stems up for the for the hands and and i've seen a lot of books that don't do that and i'm like i bet that's hard for them <laughs> hard <laughs> to figure that out <laughs> um so yeah and and of course i don't know if we mentioned like In between the percussion and strings is like everything else. So harps, organ, piano, Mm -hmm. uh, celesta. Well, it's just technically percussion, but then like choir, (laughs) so actually, I think isn't that if there's a if it's a concerto, isn't that normally where you find it right above the strings? Um, I'm I don't have yes, handy to check yes, yeah, right above the strings. So, uh, and, and that's another that's a reason I did not even think of for this episode. You might want to do a score study if you are an instrumentalist preparing a concerto. You might have the four stave version, but you might want to know exactly what's going on in the orchestra. That could affect your interpretation of how you want to play with them. So, Let's also just uh, clarify the difference between the two types of orchestra scores that you might see. You have the kind of traditional or transposed score. And then you have what might be called a C-score. And usually, if I'm not mistaken, the C-scores will tell you that. It'll tell you that uh, either by C-score or Mm -hmm. in-concert pitch. But, you know, what are some of the things we got to watch out for if it's not a C-score?
1: Well, if it's not a C-score and you're, let's say, for example, you're up conducting and or you're the composer and you're standing there next to the conductor and they want to do a note check okay make sure you take a take a breath and look and make sure your transposition is is correct before you tell them the note Mm -hmm. um particularly for me saxophone when i have to be looking at the different saxophones going up a six or the with the alto sax Tenor sax is up a ninth, Mm -hmm. and Barry Sax is treble clef. It's up a ninth and up in treble clef, so it's actually written an octave higher. You could, you could, and yeah, you just have to be careful with that. And what I usually do to get around it is I'll give the conductor either a transpose score, Mm -hmm. unless he asks for a C score, because sometimes they like the C score. Then I'll have a C score next to me. Mm-hmm. I'll be holding the C score, and when there's the no check, I'll just I'll just give them the note. Right.
0: Uh, I'll go ahead or, and offer if you're if you're trying to figure out if you're score studying and you're seeing like clarinet and A or clarinet and B flat, and you know if you're looking at saxophones and everything is in E flat or B flat, and you've got the French horn and F. Uh, I'm gonna credit my uh, orchestral conductor from uh, undergrad school, uh, Mr. McNeilan and he gave us this thing called hand to stand and that is the instrument in your hand compared to what is on the stand so if you're trying to say what would my b flat clarinet be in the if if i'm looking at a c score i have to go up a step right but if i'm at a piano and, and what you have to do is if you're trying to analyze the music, you are, you're trying to think in the key of C you're trying to, and, and what we mean by the key of C is not that it's in the key of C major, but it's, it's C untransposed. C yes. C equals C is what we're saying. Mm-hmm. So like when you, when we're talking about B flat trumpet, B flat clarinet, we're saying that if you write them a C, it sounds like a B flat and an the E flat alto saxophone, their C to them sounds like an E flat to us. So that's a whole another episode someday. <laughs> Right. <laughs> I talk about that. But if you're trying to figure out, well, what are they playing? I want to play it on the piano. I want to or, or on the keyboard. You are you are thinking in terms of C. So like if you're looking at an F horn, you you have to figure out, well, that's either going up a fourth or down a fifth. And and in most cases from the piano, you're going to be going down. There's like very few instruments that transpose up, you know. Yes. Piccolos and up an octave, you know, but so. Just, just kind of a little general guideline, but yeah, obviously, if you're a conductor and you're making corrections, if you're looking at a C score, you're either going to have to say concert pitch, clarify your instructions, or you have to do your transpositions. You know, and just remember, hand to stand is kind of a good approach. You know, and mm-hmm. um, to get to their instrument. So we've talked about some of the benefits of of score study, and you know, we might go into Uh, a little bit more detail in a moment but let's talk about where you can find these scores especially the orchestral scores so we we kind of mentioned i i i put this up if you're watching on youtube you know these are clips this is um dover dover publications they have pretty inexpensive scores is a way that you can do that yep um and they've got I haven't even looked at their library in a long time because of another resource. I'm going to mention in just a moment, but really nicely bound and easy to read scores. Um, I also, uh, I didn't mention this, but I pulled out if you, if you've, (laughs) my eyesight is not what it used to be, but like, this is actual size, you know, just a little taller than my hand. Uh, This is one of my larger miniature scores and you know, being a miniature score, it's designed for study. It's not, it wouldn't be great to conduct from this, but you can at least see what's going on. This is a Hindemith, Mathister Mahler score. And I've got quite a few of those, you know, on the shelf behind me, just real, really tiny, <laughs> not easy to read, but you can follow them. But, uh, but a, something that I've mentioned before in a previous episode is imslp.org. And I mentioned that for sight reading. But there's a lot of orchestral scores there. And surprisingly recent, like I've almost anything I've looked for by Respighi, I've been able to find it. Um, Not a lot by Stravinsky, because he did live, you know, pretty deep into the 20th century. 1971. Yep. But early Prokofiev, early Shostakovich, Mm -hmm. and of course, early Stravinsky. um, But, you know, it's basically if it's before about 100 years ago, roughly you can't, you can find a, a score there. Now you have to decide, do I want to print all this out or are you okay putting it on your screen and a tablet? I guess the problem then if you do that is if you can, uh, I mean, it helps if you have an app like ForScore would be a good, a good one. Uh, F O R S C O R E where you can annotate, you can, you can pause and you can, you know, use a a marker or type text or something like that. Because I think one of the things that really helps with score study is writing things down that you're discovering in the margins below, or, you know, in some file that goes with it. That One of the problems I just mentioned is uh, it's hard to find inexpensive scores of more contemporary pieces. Mm -hmm. So the best place that I could advise for that would be, music libraries at a university, like almost everything I've ever found that's contemporary has, has been there. So I, I guess you have to check the policies of, of what it is. It might be that you, you can go and you have to stay in the library and just get a notebook and, you know, write or, you know, take, take a, take a camera, photo of certain passages or, or or whatever. Uh, But if they could let you check it out and you could kind of take more time with it and listen to the music, that's something you can do. Um, Or if money's not an object, you can buy the scores. (laughs) And um, and I just want to mention this real quick because I am a film music... I mean, obviously we are both film music fans. It's a great company out there. And every now and then they have some deals, but it's called Omni Publications. It's like full score of Poltergeist here. And they've done a bunch of... And I don't have i
1: i'm not familiar with omni press
0: yeah omni music publishing and Mm -hmm. uh they have i feel like they have a facebook page you know out -hmm. there but they've they they just their latest one is total recall jerry goldsmith they've got a lot of jerry goldsmith stuff Uh, i know they have star trek the motion picture um they've got quite a few things by james horner i don't know that they've ever advertised anything by john williams and that could be a rights thing i don't know if
2: it could be could be I mean, because I mean, every
0: every yeah, unfortunately, James Horner and Jerry Goldsmith are not with us anymore, and that may have something no. to do with it. <laughs> no, you're you're right about that. So, besides the the resources I mentioned, ha- have have you come across any other sources of finding and collecting scores for or- for orchestra?
1: Yes, there is the Boozy and Hawks series. Hmm. And this is one that I like. I picked it up. It's Bernstein's Orchestral Anthology, mm-hmm. uh, Volume 1. And it has three dances from On the Town, symphonic dances from West Side Story. You can get, um, there's a Copland orchestral anthology available. Um, a lot of works by Benjamin Britten. Um, Russian orchestral works. Uh, but those are the Prokofiev. Uh, Lieutenant Keeja, Symphonic Suite. This is just some that you can, I'm just thinking about here that are printed on the back. Young Person's Guide to the Orchestra, Benjamin Britten. And that's just part of it. Yeah. Uh, But that's another source. And their their scores are more expensive than Dover, uh, but they're reasonable. And they're written in large enough print where you can uh, sit down and study them. And one thing I liked about Bernstein is how he combines the jazz into the orchestra. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nice. And that's why I, I predict I kind of highlighted that particular score.
0: Let's uh, let's transition. Let's talk about some strategies for score study. So, you know what what can you do? You've got the scores. What are some of the things that we can do to get some information from it? I want to just highlight some of the things that you said already. You know that you did getting started. So so one of the ones that you, you did was a, a reduction. You looked at the orchestral score and you tried to reduce it down to, I think you said three staves. And and I think that's three or four staves is kind of a good number. It's like if you do it to two, you might see everything. But it, if you have any kind of polyphony going on, it's just really hard to to see what's going on. It mm-hmm. gets real cluttered. Um, so that's one of the things that uh, that we can do one of the things that I wanted to mention kind of early in, in this list is I, I really think that this was kind of the time honored way of learning composition before getting a university education was more popular. And obviously having a mentor was of course a big help, but a lot of people that like, I think if Beethoven was trying to learn how to write, he probably grabbed some Haydn scores or Handel, or, you know, or whatever he could find mm-hmm. And one of the things that that a lot of these composers did was literally write it out on it fresh, you know, just like write out mm-hmm. the flute, write out the oboe. And by doing that, this this is one of those things this this could be a whole other topic. Uh, you know, people talk about is it better to if you're writing a journal, you know, just for example, is it better to type it out or is it better to write it out by hand? And there are a lot of, Psychologists will tell you there's something very powerful about writing it out by hand. Uh, I agree. so so much so that when I compose today, I may not write out every note, but I try to get the main ideas out by hand, and I'll make some text instructions like expand this chord, add some color, and then I'll go to finale and I'll do the work there. but to get the to get the the creative nuggets out, that's really helpful. And you watch your hand write all of this out. Mm -hmm. and you you start to see the tendencies of these instruments and what what works and what doesn't so that is a it's time consuming but but that's a literal way to do it now if you're just insistent you can just go straight into finale or sibelius or any notation program and do the same thing open open uh you know i'd probably start with about 20 staves and then you know expand as needed one of the things you could also do just this, this might be good for just kind of hearing how the process goes together. Uh, And, and, and probably not hard for anybody who has a, has a DAW like, like Logic or Visual Performer Pro Tools is uh, open up a bunch of MIDI files, you know, for those instruments, you know, or MIDI virtual instruments, you know, like uh, open up your flute, your clarinet and record each part. And it also might even help you. Now you, you, for most of these, you should be able to handle the transposition. This will give you good practice for that. You can play what's written for the clarinet. Just transpose what you're playing down to whole steps. I believe if I said that right. And then play what you see, and it'll sound in concert pitch. So that's uh, that's one of the things you could do.
1: I've yeah. done that too, where I would um, record it mm-hmm. and play it off using, I use digital performer with the microphone back in the time. And I would record it, or I would, and I would mix it with the synthesizers, and I would isolate lines and hear how it sounded without it, without the rest of the orchestra playing, and that helped. But I found that it didn't give me the results I wanted because I wasn't internalizing the sounds. Yeah, it was playing back for me, and it was kind of more like, um, more like a, a, a audio candy. Yeah. So I was dependent on that to help me listen to the sound rather than, than putting that concept in my head and being able to hear it. And when I can hear it in my head, I remember it better.
0: Right. Okay, that's a great point. So there's a couple that we can elaborate on. So one of the things you can also do, I just have a few scores here for an example, but like I'll bring out the planets again. And that is that you can make observations about what you're hearing. So I'm just gonna, this is the opening of Mars. And this is just what I wrote. I said, all of the strings are, are playing a low G and they all have the same rhythm. They're playing legno, which is the side of the bow or the stick part of the bow for a percussive effect. Uh, there are two harps playing and one is going from a low G to a high G, the other one's going from the higher G to the low G, and when you hear them together it sounds like they're playing in octaves. But Yes, yes. Very interesting effect. The timpani doubles what the bass is doing. And then as soon as there's some harmony in, I wrote, I, I notated that it's a D-flat major over a G bass resolving to a G chord. And um, measure 17, at some point I noticed that every wind instrument or every woodwind instrument is playing except for the flutes. So I just never really asked myself why but it was just something that I noticed you know that was going on and made some more comments about the ostinata that's going on and that's just the first four pages of this but every so often I'm writing down some right. kind of observation you know that and so this is something you can do and i've got a bunch of scores i'm embarrassed to admit that just have a big circle around a passage and just says color question mark <laughs> harmonies <laughs> question mark which means i need to go back and figure out what's going on but that means i listen to it once with the score open and it's like this is really neat i got to go back and figure out what's going on and some places i have some places i haven't holst is very interesting
1: Mm -hmm. Um, because he was a brilliant orchestrator yeah but he at one point was tasked to teach orchestration i forget exactly where he was teaching in london or wherever he was teaching Mm -hmm. but he tried to teach the course and he couldn't Mm. because for him he couldn't separate orchestration from composition yeah to him it was so intertwined He would hear the sounds and say, oh, well, these instruments are making these sounds. He would put it down. Mm -hmm. He didn't like the idea of coming out with like a four or five sketch and say, okay, well, what instruments am I going to do with this? He had this instinct. Tchaikovsky was another person. Mm -hmm. He has this wonderful orchestration. And when you look at it, it doesn't look like much because he didn't really put a whole lot of thought into it. He was just naturally able to do it. Mm -hmm. Same with Debussy. You know, he was asked, how do you orchestrate? He says, well, listen to the, watch the leaves fall from the tree in the fall time. Listen (laughs) to the ocean as it comes walking in. Look, it's all around you. Orchestration is all around you. All you have to do is harness it. But on the other hand, you had people like, like Hector Berlioz Mm -hmm. and Richard Strauss and Maurice Ravel, who disagreed and said, no, Mm -hmm. orchestration can be taught yeah and there were wonderful orchestrators Uh, one book that i that i have here and it's an old one it's the treatise of orchestration by hector berlioz Mm -hmm. and it has the 1909 edition by translated and updated by richard strauss Mm. and it's it's a beautiful work and you you, we know how wonderful those two were as orchestrators berlioz was a forerunner of the large orchestra Mm -hmm. i mean he he put it he basically according to Mendelssohn, put Mendelssohn to bed for five weeks ill because the music was so loud and, and cacophonous that he just couldn't handle it. Right. Um, and Strauss, he's such a wonderful orchestrator too. And his book, he takes examples that we can find every day and goes into, into detail with it. One thing I like about this book is they talk about the strings and the multi-stop. There's a whole section on it yeah and when you read go through and read it you will understand even if you don't play the instrument like i don't you'll understand how it works yeah and with uh, the later books either canon Ken- books or the in, a, a book in between like rips
0: korsakoff yeah. they don't talk about that right um since we're talking books i don't have it because i've never invested in it but the like the Bible out there that, that I've heard the most is Samuel Adler. It's like, yes, I've heard that. I don't have it either. Yeah, it's a huge, huge book. So I, I couldn't tell you personally, you know, uh, anything about it. But there's also, there's there are plenty of other resources out there. So things that, uh, I mean, I don't even know what's current, you know, uh, among most colleges, you know, when they teach, but, uh, but there are a lot of resources out there. Um, I want to talk about one other thing you can do. With a score, and it's something I never thought about till you you told me, and you you mentioned it earlier that you did this yourself. And I did this with uh, with Debussy uh, on an example, and that's listen to, you know, get the score, make sure you've got it so you can check, but don't don't look at it. Listen to a recording and see, and even if it's just like a you know an eight measure passage, write down what you think you're hearing, even if it's a reduction or if you're doing the full orchestration. And then get out the book and see how you did. So you said you did that with, uh, you did that with Beethoven, right?
1: I did it with Beethoven. I did it with um, Debussy's Nocturnes, the Nuage, uh, the Fete, and Sirens. Yeah, I worked with those. And the reason I chose those is because they were the least busy. Yeah. Uh, it was particularly late nuage. I had these very transparent colors and, and sounds and... I basically taught myself how to write like Debussy doing that. Mm-hmm. Another one I did was um, with Richard Strauss. Now, I, I warn people with Richard Strauss, if you're a beginning uh, writer, you don't wanna study him in, in the beginning because his mod, his later works, there's so much polyphony, there's all this fantastic orchestration. You can certainly learn a lot, but you're not gonna be writing pieces like that very often because that's virtuoso orchestra writing. And most groups like where we live, they're not going to have the time to to learn music that difficult. But if you take his first symphonic poem, Aus Italien, which is a four-movement tone poem, and it sounds more like Mendelssohn on steroids. It's a much larger group, orchestra. And there's a a third movement in there, which is called... It's the Andantino, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and it has the muted strings, and it has a very dreamy, dreamy, cascading effect, and it's so transparent that you can attempt to write it uh, by listening to it. Nice. And it isn't overly polyphonic either. So I've done that with that work. And of course, you know, I earlier before Beethoven, I did that with some Haydn and Mozart before I got hold of the scores.
2: Right.
0: But, now, I want to go back to something that you you told me a long time ago, and you have kind of mentioned it before. Talking about, you know, for beginners getting into orchestration. I don't know if you were quoting something you said or if you were making an observation yourself but it was it was was advice to a young composer that you said if you'll if you'll study the Beethoven symphonies you'll learn all you need to know about basic orchestration do you still stand by that opinion I do I do because all
1: of the modern music that we have today it traces all back to Beethoven at least in western music yes traces all back to Beethoven and Beethoven is where he's basically the founder of the modern orchestra
2: mm-hmm.
1: everything has come from that prior to that when you look at other composers haydn and mozart they're more focused on material yeah and structure than they are orchestration and some some of their symphonies as they go some symphonies are better than others they'll have like three great symphonies and then they'll have some that you know they probably didn't have a lot of time to work on and they'll then if Five more great ones and then two that sound like they wrote them 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. And the progression is up and down. Well, with Beethoven, he starts with his first symphony. And from there, he takes that and then he expands on it in his second. And he expands on his third and his fourth and his fifth and his sixth and his seventh. And so my recommendation is start with the first one. Mm -hmm. Learn how Beethoven wrote as he learned to write. Yeah. And build start from the beginning and do it in sequential order from Symphony Number One all the way up to Symphony Number Nine. Yeah. And by the time you get to the ninth symphony, you'll know so much about Beethoven, you won't be overwhelmed with trying to digest the last symphony. Right. A lot. A lot of a lot of people say, well, I just like to get the last works of every composer because it's a summary of all their knowledge. Well, yes, but you can do that and. If you're like, got this mindset for it, go ahead. There's, it's not wrong, but I can't do it that way. Yeah. So I'll start from the beginning and, and go all the way to the end of the line. So, and to me, Beethoven, it's kind of like like an actor studying theater. You wouldn't become an actor or be a playwright without studying Shakespeare.
2: Yeah.
0: That's where it's all, that's where, that's where it's all learned. Yeah. And so it's that equivalent yeah exactly., uh, you know, and speaking of Beethoven, you know, I don't know if we really touched on this. I've only done this with symphonies one, three, five, and I think maybe six. I think I've done it one, three, five, and six. I've done a complete Roman numeral analysis of every harmony in the piece and and that was the that was my first kind of self education project after graduating from all of schools, you know, and I wanted to keep that part fresh, you know, so that is something else that you can do. So one of the questions that I, that I sh- shared with you in advance, and I want to go ahead and ask is what is one or two things, what, what are a few things that you would say that you learned from score study about composing or orchestration that you otherwise would not have learned from the classes you took? I learned the first thing I did was I learned how to
1: create color, texture and sounds that you couldn't learn in a an orchestration method book or in a classroom. They're just questions that that the, the teacher can't answer. Mm-hmm. But if you go to the scores that attract you the most, the music that really inspires you, it's like asking the composer themselves, right? And saying, "Hey, you know, how did you do this?" Well, here this is how I solved this problem. You know, pull out his score, and he would just show it to you. Well, you're already doing that. It's just like he's he's done that. So he's teaching you long after he's dead. Yep. And then you can take that, and then I learned to, I would copy it, and then I would try to create something like that, mm-hmm. to where I could remember the skills. Yeah. By reapplying it. One of the things. One example of that is in uh, Richard Strauss's um, Don Quixote in Variation 7, with the big, there's a big storm and sequence in there. Mm -hmm. And it's got the wind machine, and it's got the the chromatic ascending and descending lines and the strings and the woodwinds, and it just sounds like this beautiful, it's this beautiful storm. I've used that on that technique on certain occasions on some of my own arrangements in, 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 in music that I've done. The second thing would be how to take marginal ideas that you may have or need to use and make them sound great with good orchestration.
2: Right.
1: Now, getting back to Beethoven, one of the reasons I think Beethoven is a genius is because he has some of the greatest ideas ever. And... He has some of the worst ideas ever. Well, like this, the the Fifth Symphony, mm-hmm. four notes. If that guy came into my studio back then and said, "Okay, I have these four notes. I'm going to write a symphony," I would just laugh at him and go, "You're going to write a symphony with that? How?" And then he would go off and write the symphony and just show everybody how great he was. another one beethoven symphony number no. 3 bum 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 not, <speaking> not my favorite as idea right but what does he do with it he he develops the ideas and then he has this great orchestration that hides any of the things that he might not have liked about it And that's, that's, that's use of orchestration. Right. Uh, the third one is doing more with less and with limited instrumentation. Right. And I learned that through the film scoring classes that we took, not always having the instruments that you need or right. the sounds that you require and pushing forward with what you have. And you really find that you're, you're you'd be amazed. Right. And how good some of these things sound that you didn't think would sound because you didn't have what you originally thought you wanted.
0: Right. OK, so the next thing is, you know, you've, you've mentioned a few things. You mentioned Als Italien by Richard Strauss, but what are just some scores, however many you want to name, that you'd recommend that, you know, people trying to study orchestration or composition, trying to get better at it? Uh, I mean, we'll we'll just go ahead. I'll go ahead and just start you off. All all nine symphonies of Beethoven. We said that.
1: What are some other
0: words you'd recommend?
1: Okay, well, mind you, when I'm saying this, I'm 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 recommend people who are more on the early stages of orchestration. I mean, obviously, for advanced writers, there's 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 different music, but I would say all three W.C. Nocturnes. the Richard Strauss italien all four movements. *Don Quixote* because it's theme and variations. Yeah. And and he's taking the theme and using orchestration to help to help with that. Um, and Bernstein's symphonic dances from *West Side Story*, because you're using the expanded twentieth extended harmony twentieth century uh, technique. Well, actually, it's not. It's it's not twentieth century. It's more Debussy came up with this yes and and using that in a jazz setting and orchestral setting because he often combined Bernstein often combined the two in a lot of his early earlier writings right and so that's a good one but of course if you're the advanced orchestrator by all means go through Stravinsky's music
0: um yeah I will jump on that so for Stravinsky if you're if you're like I'm ready to start doing that. I will say the Firebird is very accessible. You'll see a lot of interesting things like you know, very early on he has the cellos glissandoing but only by doing harmonics. You know, it's just catching all of the partials as it goes up and down. It's a really interesting effect. But I think Stravinsky progresses faster than anybody other than maybe the Beatles in music history in terms of yeah, styles. Petrushka is already a lot harder to decipher and the Rite of Spring, you really have to be patient with that <laughs> but the nice thing One, about Rite of Spring though, real quick, is uh, Stravinsky did a two piano version of it so you can harmonically see what's happening
1: Yeah, I, I don't have this two piano but I I have the orchestra version um, but what I would say, what I've learned with with basically, it's, it's all music, but particularly with 20th century music, because the harmonic and language and structure is different, because composers were getting tired of the 19th century chord progressions and chromaticism was just, there was no place to go with chromaticism. And then you had Schoenberg come up with his 12-tone where, Musical democracy, where all the notes in the the scale were important and coming up with a whole new blend and texture. And so I would say for somebody studying, you need to first digest what you're hearing. Yeah. And not looking at it like dissonance, whether he has seventh chords or augmented chords or chordals. You're looking basically at what music essentially is it's organized tension and resolution
2: mm-hmm.
1: and no matter when you look into at all the great music no matter what period whether it's monteverdi with the seventh chords which he was nearly persecuted over the functional dominant seventh chord to anything by stravinsky or stockhausen or schoenberg webern you can they don't escape the tension and resolution and when you figure out where that is in the music and how that works, when you open up your score and you start studying it, knowing
0: how it functions, it's
1: much easier to digest.
0: All right. So yeah, we just about reached the the end of our, our time. And, you know, it's been great chatting with you about this once again, after all this time, um, if anyone would like to, you know, get your input on things regarding score study or anything else compositional, where can they, where can they reach you?
1: Well, they can reach me at my email and that's A-J-C-A-L-L-O, A-J-C-A-L-L-O dot A-C at com. Or if they have Facebook, they can, they can message me. I'm under Andrew Callow. There's more than one. I'm not the one in Hawaii.
0: <laughs> and I, I will say, if you go to the Facebook page, hope you like trains. You just, you, you have always been as long as a train <laughs> enthusiast <laughs> and, uh, Uh, And in fact, uh, my wife was just asking the other day, it's like, is he still into trains? I was like, pretty sure he is. Yeah, pretty sure. Pretty sure. Yes.
1: I wrote a whole symphony uh, for a community out in California that was inspired by a train. Um, It's called Eagle Mountain Portrait. Hmm. And that was the symphony that they they had uh, the premiere. And I was interviewed on the radio, local radio station over here. And it was for a town in California. It was called Eagle Mountain. They were an iron ore mountain town, corporate town, out in the middle of the desert. And they mined iron ore until the mine closed in 1983. And the town has been a ghost town ever since. But there's a very active and vibrant online community. And one time I was out there following the rails. They had a train that went up there. And I saw the town and saw it was a ghost town and it got me so curious. And I started getting in touch with these people and they were telling me their stories. And next thing you know, a whole symphony came out of it.
2: Nice.
0: Yeah. And I have heard it. It's a great, very good job. Great piece. Well, Andrew, thank you so much uh, for, for chatting with me today. It's for some people, this might be a little bit nerdy as far as the topic goes, but I do think if, if you, want to really dive into musicianship you got to see what's on the written score and you've given us a lot of ideas to to go exploring so thank you and that just about finishes up episode 16 one final note from our conversation Uh, soon after we were done recording andrew shared with me that he actually had prepared quite a few thoughts that we didn't get around to and uh and he wrote them down and he shared them with me and I put that on a PDF document on my website that is linked in the show notes if you want to go ahead and check that out. As always, if you haven't already, I want to encourage you to check out FONS as I've been doing for nearly a year now. It is an online platform that you can use to schedule all of your students, uh, change the schedule easily for either on your by you doing it or the students doing it. Also, and you can set it up however you want, according to your policies, whether you take makeups or, you know, whether you, they have to cancel 24 hours in advance or whether you just don't, there's no cancellation policy. You can set it up according to your policy and you can, you can, you can set your own rates. You can also be sure of several things when it's time for your student or your client's appointment or lesson. Because again, you can do this for music, or you can do it for martial arts, yoga, being a personal trainer, w- whatever it is. Well, you can be sure if if you and your clients are on Fonds, that they are they are going to get a reminder from the app about their time with with it with reasonable notice. There's not that oh I forgot. Um, as long as they check their emails or their text messages, they'll get that reminder. And uh, likewise, you can sync it to your calendar so you don't have to forget either. If you look at your calendar each day, each morning, which hopefully you should, you'll see your lessons for the day listed there. And then if you, and you're like, oh, I forgot, I got to change it. Well, you can go into the app and you can cancel it and they will get a notification, but you can also include a message with that. So this is just one of the things that the app does and it takes care of the payment for you and there's a free trial for the app so that you don't have anything to lose by giving it a try. So check out that that link in today's show notes and also any of the previous episodes. If you're watching on YouTube, thank you so much. And I would appreciate it if you haven't already, if you would make sure to follow me and to uh, subscribe and to like this video. If you are listening on a podcast, thank you so much for listening. I hope that you will follow to automatically be able to know about any future episodes and you can follow me on social media where I post about the podcast on TikTok or Instagram at David Lane Music on Facebook at David M. Lane Music and again I'm on YouTube if you haven't checked that out already at David Lane Music One. Once again thank you so much for listening and there will be another episode for you next week.